Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you holding up? Oh, I'm holding up pretty good. Yeah, there's only 23 days, four hours, three minutes and 48 seconds until the election is over from when we're recording this. And I, I am I'm ready. I'm very ready. So on today's podcast, we are going to discuss the ad campaign that John Ossoff is running in his bid to unseat Georgia Senator David Perdue. And then we're also going to check in on some other news from the last week or so in Georgia politics, including news on Trump and Biden's ad spending in Georgia, a poll showing Reverend Raphael Warnock consolidating support among Georgia Democrats in that other Senate race, and a quick reflection on last week's vice presidential debate. But Luke, let's start this week. You know, last week we gave a lot of airtime to David Perdue. You're welcome for that. Um, where we sort of broke down the ad strategy that Purdue has been using uh, to campaign against Ossoff. And so we're going to sort of flip it the other way this week and take a look at Ossoff's message against Purdue. Um, before we dive into any of these specific ads, Luke, is there anything, any sort of overarching thoughts on Ossoff's strategy that you want to mention before we play some of these ads? Yeah, and I think this will add some helpful context. I, I think I mentioned this some last week, but just to reiterate it, because I do think it is one of the great strengths of his campaign is the thing I've been really impressed with, with John Ossoff's campaign is that he clearly came into this race with a strategy, which is John Ossoff has had a long history of fighting corruption and being interested in investigating corruption and ran a company that that was the primary thing they did. And so there are a lot of issues around David Perdue and corruption that he could talk about and that he wanted to talk about and has continued to talk about. But prior to the pandemic, that was, I would argue, the focus of his campaign uh, was fighting corruption issues with David Perdue and with our system in general. And I thought it was a good message and it was working really well. And the thing that I was really, really impressed with with his campaign was once the pandemic was you know, clearly an issue. And if I recall my timing correctly, like the week of the shutdowns or maybe the week after the shutdowns initially happened, I saw his ad shift immediately to talking about healthcare and immediately being very well-versed, having good ideas on this issue. And the, this has happened again and again, whereas I, you know, things will happen, the media narrative or just the, you know, narrative even among my friends and family will change and Ossoff will have an ad on it pretty quickly. And so the thing that I think is uh, really different about this campaign compared to previous campaigns by Democrats in Georgia is that both it has a really clear focus strategy and also being able to remain within that strategy while also flexing to other issues uh, when when they become more relevant. So he's he's not changing what he's talking about as much as he's just responding to what people are worried about all in staying within the themes of his campaign because even like his healthcare ads will be about corruption sometimes. Uh, I, I've just found that really, really impressive. And so I hate the fact that, you know, we're, we're doing this show right now, this one time, you know, time point, and then we weren't able to talk about all these ads throughout the whole cycle to get the full effect of just how impressive it was, at least in my opinion, that he was able to shift issue to issue uh, so nimbly and quickly. But um, hopefully we'll get a good overview of just how he's talked about those issues, even if we aren't going to see his uh, responsiveness in real time. So one thing that we've talked about previously on this show is that one of Purdue's strategies has been to appeal to moderate voters by trying to separate himself from the president. Uh, Purdue has ads where he does not mention the president at all, and he, and he talks about some issues that you would think appeal to more moderate or maybe even Democratic-leaning voters. This one, to me, is really John Ossoff's rebuttal uh, to that strategy from Purdue. Let's take a listen to this ad. I'm John Ossoff, and I approve this message. The risk to the American people remains very low. The risk of this virus still remains low. We've had flus before. We've had ordinary flu seasons with more deaths. Those numbers are nowhere near what was projected. The numbers projected were supposed to be much worse. It's going very well. It's going very well. David Perdue ignored the medical experts, downplayed the crisis, and left us unprepared. 
Luke, what did you think of that ad? Ossoff is clearly trying to tie David Perdue to President Trump's failures on the virus and sort of bring Perdue down with Trump. What do you think of that approach? Well, I think it's really important to make that approach and to follow that because David Perdue is trying to engage in some revisionist history here and acting like he was always on top of the virus, always taking it seriously and, you know, fighting for Georgia families in the country and trying to get out of this crisis in a responsible way. And that's just not the case. Um, you know, there are other ads that uh, Ossoff has. And, you know, we played this ad last week, but Ossoff is tied this, you know, the pandemic to the corruption, like I was saying, and then add, he focuses on Purdue engaging in stock trades based on his information on the pandemic, you know, just an, another example of a politician who has privileged information on what's going on uh, with this uh, crisis, uh, heg of time, you know, before most Americans understood what was going on. And instead of being honest with us and giving the American people and Georgians the straight dope on what was going on, he was cashing in on it and making stock trades and trying to, you know, save a buck or two and make a buck or two. And that is, I, I think, a really important strategy and argument to be making uh, in this time where we need to trust our politicians. I mean, I think before the pandemic, you actually might have seen Ossoff try to separate uh, Purdue from Trump a little bit in some ways because Georgia has been a state that's voted for Republican presidents going back all the way to, I believe, all the way back to 1992. Um, and before Trump's numbers really cratered for Democrats to be successful in unseating Purdue in this race, you probably would have needed to find some Trump Ossoff voters. Um, to me, it seems that that's not the case anymore, that it's David Perdue who would like to separate himself from the president a little bit, and John Ossoff who would like to pin everything possible on both David Perdue and the president. So I, you know, that shift, I think, has been been interesting. That one, I think, is it's, that's a pretty straightforward message to me, because it's an easy, you know, it's sort of a layup. It's an easy one to make given how unpopular President Trump's response is to the pandemic and, and how much it continues to upend our everyday lives. It, you know, that's one that I guess would sort of be malpractice if John Ossoff didn't make that ad. Another one, and, and this is sort of what you were speaking about, Luke, in the beginning about how Ossoff has tied in the overall theme of his campaign into whatever message he wants to drive in the moment. Here's an ad tying the anti-corruption message into Purdue's response to the pandemic in the U.S. Senate. I'm John Ossoff, and so many families and small businesses are hurting right now. But when Georgians needed help, Senator Purdue fought against $1,200 stimulus checks for workers, and he led the fight to cut unemployment insurance while at the same time he gave billions to his corporate donors. Politicians like David Perdue put the donors and lobbyists who fund their campaigns ahead of ordinary people. I approve this message because I'm not taking corporate donations, and I'll put working families and small businesses first. Luke, that one made me stop, actually. And I think it made me stop because there's no sound behind it. It's just John Ossoff sitting on his porch straight to the camera, delivering that message what did you think of that ad? So I love that ad and he has a couple ads where he's on that front porch and I, I just have been a long time advocate for someone in Georgia to do a front porch ad campaign. And so I'm so happy that someone finally has, I'm happy they're executing it so well, just because I don't know, it's just, a, you know, talking to people on your porch, is just a thing you do in the South. And I just really, really like it. And I like the tone of it. And I think also it's so appropriate considering the fact we're in a pandemic and it is probably a very responsible way to make an ad because assuming that is John Ossoff's front porch, um, I'm hoping it is because I would shatter the illusion of it a little bit for me. Uh, but like, you know, like it's pretty easy, you know, he's outside, everyone else is outside and you just set it up uh, in front of your house and socially distance and, and, and doing ads. So it's, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, TV era fireside chat. And I just think it, um, is a good structure for an ad. And, you know, of course, we're talking about all the visual things I like about an ad on an audio, uh, you know, uh, platform. But I, I think that doesn't take away from the strength of it. And we definitely need to put 
links to all these ads in the show notes so people can watch them. Um, but about the message of it, I think this is a great example of what I was talking about, what the strength of Ossoff's ads have been, is that like he's still on that fundamental core message that he started with, which is like David Perdue is corrupt and you can't trust him to fight for uh, average Georgians, but he's tying it directly to the pandemic and the response to the pandemic or the lack of response from David Perdue. And so I, I really find it to be effective because the the one thing I really like about Ossoff is most of his ads, I'd say like 80% of them, feature him in them a lot. And I think that is really important when you're making an argument that effectively is like, you can trust me and I'm telling you, you can't trust these other, you know, you can't trust my opponent. And so I think that is really important, especially because so many Democrats in races in Georgia are just, you know, demonized by the Republican opponents and just taking out of context. And uh, really, it's really easy for them to just misrepresent what Democrats are fighting for. And it's really, really hard, I think, when Ossoff has, you know, about I, at least a dozen ads, it feels like it's it's probably way less, but it feels like that just because I see so many ads on TV, they kind of blur together, but they always seem to be at least a little bit different. He has all these ads where he's just like talking directly to the audience about what he cares about and what he's fighting for. And I agree with you, like the lack of music and the simplistic production, I think makes it all the stronger because it's clear that he thinks his ideas are enough to uh, bolster it. And he doesn't have to put on, you know, a big glossy production or anything. He's just straight talk. And I, I really, really like it and hope, hope it will be successful because it is something I would love to see replicated by uh, other campaigns. I have this one observation about the trends and the ads that we've seen. Republicans have approached a lot of their ads by painting their opponents as radical, tying them to positions held by some people in the party, but typically not held by the majority of the party trying to say that they want uh, Medicare for all to take away everyone's private health insurance, saying that all of these Democrats, including the moderate Democrats, want to defund the police, even though that's not the position that they have. Republicans are, are making arguments that aren't really consistent with the positions or records held by their opponents. Democrats, on the other hand, they don't seem to have to reach very far to make the arguments that they're making. I mean, it's to me, they're not they're not reaching very far to make these arguments. When I watch a lot of Democratic ads, they are restating things that are sort of obviously true and not really that taken out of context or exaggerated. Democrats are not tying every single Republican to the positions held by like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and the QAnon Congress people like, you know, these are this is the the record and the positions held by leading Republicans in the party. Is that just an artifact of Democrats in some sense being challengers to the Republicans record and the Republicans record being unpopular or, or what do you think of the differences of those approach? I mean, maybe it's just my bias, but the, the difference seems really stark this cycle. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I, I think it really does just come down to the clear contrast that exists in the records of the current Republicans in power compared to what the American people say they want and what Democrats want to do. Because, and we talked about this a lot, on our last episode, like the fact that David Perdue feels like he needs to spend a bunch of money on ads saying, I don't want to get rid of pre-existing conditions is directly related to all of the times he's fought incredibly hard tooth and nail to get rid of pre-existing conditions, right? Like they are, they are facing this issue where their agenda is incredibly unpopular. And so because of that, they have become unpopular and their party standard bearer is unpopular. And so they're fighting against that. And I think the issue they have is that beyond the pre-existing condition issue, they don't have a lot of credible policy places to stand on that would be successful campaign campaign you know, campaigning issues for republicans right like 
they just the American people just disagree with them on what they want to do. You know, like David Perdue, if he ran an honest ag, he would say, Hi, I'm David Perdue. I would like to get rid of the Affordable Care Act so insurance companies can make more money. I would like to cut taxes on super wealthy people like me so I can buy a 15th yacht. And I think gun control laws are stupid and I think guns should be everywhere. You know, I'm David Perdue. I support this message. You know, that's what an honest ad from David Perdue would say. They're not going to run that ad because it would be incredibly unpopular to financially support, you know, promote the fact that you want to do those things. So the two ads we've listened to so far tap into, I think, kind of one thread of John Ossoff's messaging, a second thread of his messaging and the messaging of Democratic candidates in a lot of competitive races across the country is a continued focus on health care, a continued focus on um, lowering the price of prescription drugs, improving people's access to health care and protecting people who have pre-existing conditions. This, Luke, I think is another ad where Asaf layers in his anti-corruption message to a healthcare message. Let's listen to uh, one more ad from John Ossoff. I'm John Ossoff. Truth is, corruption in Washington has infected both parties. They're too busy serving lobbyists to serve us. I'll ban corporate political donations and secret corporate money in politics. And I'll crack down on price gouging by health insurance and drug companies who use that money to buy off Congress. We're all in this together. Together, we can end the corruption and make health care affordable. Fighting corruption is my job, and that's why I approve this message. Luke, in that one, John Ossoff layers in his anti-corruption message, but he he sort of starts with corruption and then uses the idea that there's corruption in Washington to explain the problems with people's access to health care, with high prescription drugs. To me, it feels like a bit of a flip from maybe a traditional healthcare focus ad that you might see. What did you think of the way in which he sort of layers his anti-corruption message into a healthcare ad? I, I think it's a very good strategy on his part. And I think it's because it's the truth, right? Like a lot of the reason why the American healthcare system cannot get reformed in a good way is because the folks who are making a lot of money in the status quo system or want to go back to the system we had before the Affordable Care Act where they were making even more money want yeah you know, they want to take it back to that place you know it's like if if there was not all this money being made in the healthcare industry i don't think it would be as hard to reform healthcare Uh, in either direction. Um, So I I think as an issue, for an issue that is this important to people's lives, I think there's a disproportionate amount of uh, corruption in it. And so I I think just having, again, an honest conversation, because while this one is not, um, you know, on on his front porch, it's at a very nice looking outdoor location. um, I think there's just something to be, be said for just straight talk about these things. And I, I think re- really this is something I, I, you know, again, I voted for John. I voted for him in the primary. I like his campaign. I like him. I met him a couple of times. I don't, you know, we're not friends or anything, but you know, I I've, I've liked him for a long time. And the, one of the things I've really liked about his campaigns is like, he just, he's just not full of shit. Like I'll put it that way. Like he is very, like, it's so funny because I would not say he talks like a normal person because He's just very, you know, he's very stiff, stiff. And we, we've talked about that before. And, but it is who he is though, right? Like he's stiff, like when you're talking to him uh, normally. And so like, it's, it's, it's this weird, authentic, like just uh, attitude he has of just, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it entirely, but the thing that I like about him and I like about his ads is that it seems like even if you don't agree with him, this is what the dude believes and that he is frustrated by all these issues and he wants to fight for them and he's not going out of his way to, you know, he's not saying David Perdue is the most corrupt singer in Georgia history. David Perdue is the most corrupt singer in Georgia history. Like he's not doing that shit because he doesn't have to. He's just staking the facts as they are. And he's staking what the problems as they are very bluntly and directly. And he's just, saying like we need to fix this crap and i just really appreciate the way that he does that um because he's not engaging in a lot of 
campaign hyperbole and he's just actually talking about real issues in a way that um, a lot of politicians running for higher offices really don't do. You know, like this is almost the equivalent in some ways in my mind of like Gretchen Whitmer's like I'm going to fix the damn roads kind of campaign where he's just like picked a couple issues that he really cares about and he just hits on them a lot and talks about them and is trying to get folks to understand that like this is a problem without engaging in unnecessary hyperbole. And I just think that's really effective in, in my mind. I find this ad fascinating because the message framework in this ad is basically a Bernie Sanders message. Bernie Sanders has campaigned since 2015. Just real quick, Kyle, are you trying to kill John Ossoff campaign single-handedly? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, but, but think I, I about disagree it, with this, but I'll let you finish your point. So, well, let, yeah, let me, let me lay this out and see if you agree with it, because I think he, he, because he is the narrator and it is his campaign, I think it it lands a lot differently. But if you sort of took that away and just sort of read the script of the ad, um, Bernie Sanders has based much of his two presidential campaigns and much of his criticism of the Democratic Party on the closeness of Democratic Party elites to, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies, to healthcare companies and that being the main hurdle to achieving Medicare for all. Now, for Ossoff, the end position here is not Medicare for all. As I understand it, he supports putting a public option into place. He is, I think, firmly within sort of the moderate Democratic consensus that uh, you're likely to see from the the top of the ticket with Joe Biden all the way down with, with moderate candidates. But the the explanatory part of this ad, the blaming this on corruption is actually, I think, a very Bernie Sanders message. And so it's interesting to see him use that. Um, I feel sort of two different ways about this, though. I think for Bernie Sanders voters, that explanation makes a lot of sense. And I think they're very motivated by Bernie Sanders framework on that issue to say, we actually need to vote some Democrats out of office to get Medicare for all put into place. And it it's what illuminates a lot of like progressive primary challenges that you've seen in, in more heavily democratic districts and, and places across the country. So I, you know, in some sense, maybe this ad would motivate that group of people to actually say, Oh, I, you know, let me take another look at this John Ossoff guy. Maybe he's a little better than I thought. Then there's this sort of like general, more amorphous anti-corruption message that I think you hear in this ad. And in some ways, it's sort of bland, like unelected challenger challenges corrupt politician kind of thing. And I'm I'm intrigued because John Ossoff in this, this ad says, fighting corruption is my job. And I wonder if people know what he means when he says that. So I don't like I'm intrigued by this ad and I think it speaks to one group very strongly, potentially. But I wonder how it lands for for like people who really love Joe Biden at Georgia. Yeah, so I will agree with you in some places and then vehemently disagree with you in others. So to start where you ended, I think really if you've heard about John Ossoff's bio at all, like people are familiar with the fact that he like made anti-corruption documentaries, like that is the very quick snippy line that I've heard a lot used like in news reports about him and stuff like that. So I don't think that's as big of a problem. The place where I'll really disagree with you is I don't think Bernie Sanders supporters, like I don't think their primary motivation for being Bernie Sanders supporters was the corruption argument. I think it was the policy outcomes that he wanted. And so the thing that I really think Ossoff is doing here is one being genuine because like, I agree with him. I did not vote for Bernie and Bernie was, you know, not my first choice in either of the elections that he ran in. But I always agreed with him on the issue of special interest in uh, national and state politics. And I mean, it's a real problem in Georgia. It's been a problem for a long time. Uh, just, you know, a lot of big money folks funding campaigns. I mean, just just look at the difference between a Democrat running for office in Georgia and a Republican running for office. And I will tell you the short version is the Democrat will have a ton more donors 
and they will have raised less money and the Republican will have very few donors, but almost all of them max out. And it's because that's who they're funded by people with like really, really big wallets. And they have those big wallets because they've been able to game the system. And just because you believe those things like I do and like very clearly John Ossoff does based on his ads does not equal Medicaid for all or sorry, Medicare for all like it interests, like we have to do something about it. And the thing I think people have failed to realize in campaigning uh, since since Bernie got on the scene is just because you talk about the problem, the source of the problem and the way that Bernie does does not mean you have to agree with the solution. And I think that's effectively what John Ossoff is campaigning on. This is something, again, it's probably why I like his campaign so much, is that the special interests are not just in the way of Medicare for all. They're in the way of everything because they want the system to remain exactly as it is or get better for them. And they will pay a lot of money to ensure those, you know, one of those two things happen. And if nothing else, absolutely make sure nothing good happens for other people that would take away from their bottom line. And so the people that I really think John Ossoff is aiming for in that ag is, is not the Bernie people. He's aiming for people who aren't very political, who are frustrated that their healthcare keeps getting more expensive every year, and nobody seems to be offering any solutions. And the thing that he is doing more effectively than any Democrat has done in a long time, because while I love Jason Carter with all my heart, and he you know ran a better campaign than a lot of people do in Georgia, he still was never able to bring this argument home that the reason why Republicans aren't good for this state is that they have a lot of issues with corruption and with their ties to special interests. And I think that is where Ossoff is exceeding here is that he's not having to, he's, he's understanding that by pointing out the problems with corruption in American politics, he is not immediately endorsing all of Bernie Sanders' agenda. To the contrary, he is saying this is what's in the way of getting anything done. And I think he's absolutely right on that front. I agree. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So I didn't I have mean, a, I was trying to I, think I think of a really good effective. response. And I'm, I'm happy to see him doing this because I think Bernie has made some Democrats like afraid of making this argument and I don't think they should be. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I largely agree with that. I I don't think that you have to land. I don't think you have to take Bernie Sanders explanation or the sort of the general anti-corruption explanation. And and the only solution is to land on Medicare for all. Um, You know, certainly there was a lot of pushback from healthcare interests to the public option when it was, when they were trying to put it in the bill in the ACA in, in 2009, 2010. Um, and, and that's what caused a lot of um, moderate Democrats to sort of back away from their support from that, including Joe Lieberman, uh, whose son is now relevant in our, our politics in Georgia here. Um, is he? <laughs> we'll he say. sure as hell wants to be, but he he's not. Be. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll about, talk that. about that later. Um it's interesting, though. I haven't seen as many moderate Democrats, I feel like, give the anti-corruption explanation as a rationale for their own plans. Um, I sort of I feel like moderate Democrats more often have defended their own sort of middle of the road health care plans as being more stable, more predictable and being plans that that voters were more willing to accept because it does not pull private insurance away from every person who currently has it and, and likes it or likes some aspects of it. So it's that's why the framing for me was stood out because it it's just different than the defense that was given. Of course, I think my frame of reference is the Democratic primary where, you know, Democrats really had this argument out between different factions in the party. Um, it's just this is the first time that I can remember in a minute seeing the anti-corruption message deployed to defend and rationalize what is essentially a consensus, more middle of the road, democratic healthcare approach, as opposed to Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all. Yeah. And I think the strength of that and the reason why Ossoff is doing that is because it's necessary because like, I hate to break this to you, Kyle, but if Joe Biden introduces a, you know, or has a ally on, in Congress introduce a bill to create a public option, 
the insurance company is going to call that death panels. They're going to call that, you know, the end of American healthcare and socialized messing. I mean, the 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 self-immolation that Republicans are going to engage in of trying to make everyone aware of just how awful this is going to be, when quite likely after it's done and passed, it will be one of the most popular things that any Democrat, any president has passed. Um yeah, like, I mean, that that's going to happen, right? So it's like Ossoff is being honest, I think, in addressing that this is going to be a problem and in, in getting this done. Because in my mind, you know, uh, I am not a healthcare expert. I never have claimed to be. I have strong feelings, <laughs> but that is all I have. And I offer those strong feelings in support of the public option. Because while I think, you know, maybe eventually having Medicare for all would be the same, a better system and probably would be since I don't like insurance industry, the insurance industry as um, may be obvious by this point of this episode. But like, I really think that no matter what you do, having a robust, successful public option is a great step one towards whatever future system we can come up with, which is better than our status quo. And I think like just honestly addressing that, like that is where we should be going, which again, that is Ossoff's position. Um, I think that is a great idea. And I, I think just acknowledging the fact that even this incrementalist, smaller approach that is more popular and you know, called more moderate will still be fought tooth and nail by people like David Perdue, like his allies that write him max out checks and like all the PACs that are spending money against John Ossoff, uh, you know, for, for taking this position. So let's move on here and talk about the status of the presidential race and what we are beginning to learn about uh, the strategy of both President Trump and Vice President Biden down the stretch here as we watch ad dollars move from the Rust Belt states, uh, the states that famously Hillary Clinton lost in that that allowed Trump to secure his victory in 2016, including Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Ad spending seems to be moving from those states towards states like Georgia. Um, and it's, it's sort of happening in, in two ways. What we've seen reports that President Trump has canceled ad buys in some of those Rust Belt states and is likely to sort of shift that money into states like Georgia. I don't know that Biden's plans in those Rust Belt states has changed, but he is investing more money in some of the Sun Belt states that are kind of a reach for him, including in Georgia. And so to me, what you can kind of infer from that going down the stretch here is that the states that are going to be closest to 50-50, the ones where both campaigns are going to be fighting it out the most and on on the most equal footing in the final days are um, some of the states that previously Republicans have held easily in presidential contests, including our own. Luke, what was your reaction to this news that it seems like the battleground is shifting into some redder states um, and President Trump, I don't know, seems to kind of be abandoning ship in in the Midwest? Well, I'm not the first one to say this, but Donald Trump had a really, really bad week last week. That was the week in which the New York Times revealed his taxes. This was the week that uh, he had a self-destructive debate performance against Joe Biden, and he topped that week off by getting the virus. And since then, it has not gotten better for Donald Trump. It's gotten worse, and it's all been self you know, created. He has every opportunity. I mean, just so many opportunities throughout his entire presidency and his campaign to get a second shot at the presidency. He's had a million opportunities to do a pivot, to be better, to do, you know, something that would just be incredibly politically advantageous for him, even if it would be completely disingenuous to who he is. And he never does it. And so, I'm not super surprised that because of that, the polls have gotten worse and worse and worse for him. And uh, I'm not going to get into this issue as deeply as um, it probably merits being discussing just because it's very complicated. But the short version is the campaign is pretty much out of money, right? Like they don't, I don't know what's happened to it. Uh, I would advise you to listen to Hacks on Tap. Uh, They have great discussion uh, of this. Uh, It's a podcast with uh, David Axelrod and Mike Murphy, both, old hats at campaigns and they they talk about this money issue in in great detail um but the short version is they're just out of money 
And I think the reason why they're pulling out of a lot of those other states is that they are trying to, you know, let, let's let's assume that competent people are running this campaign, which is a very big leap. Um, and I mean, as as further proof of that, I mean, there I read a Polico article today just about how it's amateur hour at the White House, and that at this point. It's not even the B team. It's the below B team there. And I mean, a lot of these decisions I, I honestly attribute to that is just the fact that they don't have good talent. And so I'm sure combining high stress situation with no money and people who are not very good at their job, then weird decisions like this get made. But let's assume that like smart people made this decision and people who uh, have some semblance of an idea of what they're doing. Looking at the 538 model, which is always fun to look at, um, like Georgia is the last red state, right? Like, you know, for like if you go further to the left than Georgia, it starts being blue states then. And so to some extent, like they have to hold on to Georgia. And if, you know, based on what I've read about the spending they are doing, what it really seems like they might be shifting towards now is in these last three weeks, just putting all of their money in one path to winning the presidency, which seems to be Pennsylvania and Florida and making sure nothing crazy happens in a Georgia or a, you know, South Carolina or something like that. I don't think, I don't know if they're putting money there, but just as an example. And so what I kind of feel like is happening, it's almost like they overlearned 2016 and they, you know, basically don't want to have like a Michigan happen to them where people would be like, hoo, 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 you know, Trump should have spent money in Georgia. Um, and so like that kind of seems like what they're fighting against, which I mean, does not shock me that they would be susceptible to concerns like that. Um, but I think it also is just like looking at the polling, Georgia does not look great for them. Like Biden has been up in the past couple polls and Ossoff has been even with Purdue in the past couple polls. And there are two Senate races there. And so I think in their mind, they have a lot of good reasons to spend in Georgia. And I, and I think um, combine that with the money they, I mean, the, the very little bit about the money they have, they have very little choice of spending elsewhere. Yeah, I guess to me, it just exemplifies the really tough hand that the Trump campaign has to play right now. I mean, if they're on the verge of losing Georgia, it just seems like they've lost the race otherwise. I mean, maybe there is a single path if they can hold on to North Carolina, hold on to Florida, hold on to Ohio, and then grab Pennsylvania. Grab Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't I think, I think does that, that works put so them I can check the math real quick. To two seventy. So this this could be a viable path for Trump because if he wins everything he won in 2016 except Wisconsin and Michigan, he would still win the presidency. So I mean that's what I think they must be doing here. Whereas like they don't want to get surprised in any red state that they think they should win, but it's starting to look close. And they're just pumping all their money into Pennsylvania because while Ohio and Florida look good for uh, Biden. I mean, those are two states where the polling, I think, was particularly off in 2016. And it had a lot to do with just a lot of Trump voters that people weren't talking to and were surprised by. So, I mean, you know, if you told me Trump won fairly, like there's no no fraud, no shenanigans, he lost the popular vote, but won the electoral college, like my guess would be that what happened was there's a lot of Trump voters who just don't vote very often. And they're just people who they're registered, but they very, very rarely vote. Maybe they vote in 20, 2016. Maybe they didn't even vote then. But the Trump campaign successfully activated them and just a ton of them voted. If you told, like, that is the one scenario where I think Trump could win this thing despite what is happening now that doesn't involve fraud. I think it's very unlikely, but I think that seems to me to be the scenario that they one, believing, but two, are also begging on. Arizona kind of blows that up, doesn't it? I mean, because he won Arizona in 2016, right? That, that would be right? a tie if Biden won that one. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that kind of conversation today. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, 
it's interesting. I mean, I, I generally think that it's a bad sign for him that he feels he has to defend Georgia. And I think that that's, that's probably very bullish for Biden. The other thing that it does, though, I think it it is helpful to Democratic chances to take the Senate if the presidential map is much more expansive for Biden than it would be in a, in a much closer race because ad spending investment in terms of staffing and, and get out the vote efforts in Georgia is going to help John Ossoff against, against David Perdue. It, you know, we'll talk here about Warnock in a second, but it could be somewhat helpful there. Um, you know, it's, it's helpful in Arizona, even though I think Mark Kelly seems to look really good in that Arizona Senate race. Um, it's helpful in North Carolina where you have a democratic challenger to a Republican. I guess that's why you're starting to see if you, if you look at 538, Democrats are actually slightly favored to take the U S Senate, um, because it just feels like the ball is bouncing their way in a lot of these races. And, you know, the foundation to all of that is, is what we talked about really in the first segment. It's Trump has really set the baseline for him and his party so low in this race by his terrible handling of the pandemic. And, all of the Republicans' problems and all of the Democrats' opportunities seems to grow from that foundation. Um, let's 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 talk a little bit about the latest polling in Georgia's other Senate race. The big takeaway for Democrats out of that poll is that Reverend Raphael Warnock now has a pretty comfortable lead. In that race, uh, a WSB poll from last Friday had Warnock at 36%, followed by Leffler at 26%, Collins at 23%. I believe Matt Lieberman registered at 3% in that poll, and 8% were still undecided. Um, Luke, I think Democrats can feel comfortable that Warnock will make the runoff now. That doesn't seem like as urgent of a problem as it did when Lieberman's numbers were a little bit higher. But as Warnock gets closer to 50%, if he gets even, you know, within the ballpark of that, do you think that that actually sort of amps up the need for other Democrats to step aside? Yes, because they should have stepped aside earlier, um, but they definitely should step aside now. There is no argument for staying in and no authentic argument besides I really care about my ego. I want to be on a ballot. I want people to vote for me and I want to spoil this race. Like that is the only argument that's legitimate at this point because like you are not going to be the Democrat that gets in a runoff. There are only three viable scenarios that exist right now. One, Raphael Warnock and a Republican get into this runoff. Two, two Republicans get in this runoff, which seems less likely now, but I think it's still possible. And then three, like Raphael Warnock wins outright. And that is our best chance to hold on to the seat. I mean, kind of unsurprisingly, if you just win it, uh, you get 50% plus one, then yeah, that's that's obviously a great way to get the seat. And the only way that happens is all these other Democrats gig out, they endorse him, and they start fighting for him. And does anyone want to do that? Is that a great place to be? Is that an emotionally you know, satisfying place to be? Absolutely not. And I understand that. And that's hard. But, you know, this is a crazy year. There's a lot at stake. And this is just the only chance we have of getting the seat. Um, I, I, I hope and pray that if this does go into a runoff, that Democrats will be in a place in a position to take advantage of it and to fight like hell to win the seat. But Democrats have gotten their hopes up about runoffs for a long time, and it's never panned out. Maybe this is the year, and I'm certainly going to fight like hell to make it the year that it finally happens. I just don't, you know, I don't feel great about those chances. Um, so, like, I really, really wish Democrats would take the issue seriously and just take facts seriously. And, like, there's a reason if you were polling at 13% that you're now polling at 3 And that reason is because you were just not a compelling candidate for this race and that your opponent has done a better job. And, you know, if you don't think that's fair, then, I mean, tough. Life in politics is not fair. Um, but the, the thing we have to do at moments like these is, you know, come together and fight like hell to get the policy outcomes we want. Um, and because the thing I guarantee you will happen 
is let's assume it is Warnock versus one of the other Republicans. Let's say it's Loeffler that wins. Like Doug Collins will not sit that race out. He will at least performatively support Loeffler and fight for her and to try to help her win. And the thing I am always so frustrated by Democrats, and I have to you know say this is not always the case, but so often when there are these tough races like these, the other Democrat who loses them will just sit on the sidelines and go away and hold a piggy party for themselves because they didn't win. And that's just something that can't happen this time. And if any of the other Democrats running in this race think they are a great voice for Georgia and that they uh, have important things to say and that they can rally supporters, well, great. Do that and support the Democratic candidate and people will remember. I will not forget any Democrat who would do that and they will get points in the future if they run for office again this is not the last election hopefully and you know considering that like there will be other opportunities to run for office and i guarantee you because i've seen it happen that the candidates that you know are able to swallow their, their pride a little bit and do something that's better for the party and do something that ends up helping our candidates do better they end up having more success in the future than they would have if they had ran the thing out to the end or just had a pity party for themselves after they lost. And I'm just frustrated that people don't see the power in coming together uh, like that. So Luke, Matt Lieberman is ready to crush your logic. He has a game plan to win this race. He has a new contract with Georgia voters that calls to mind Newt Gingrich, where he makes principled stands like promising not to lie to us where he embraces school choice and term limits and where he takes a really principled stand for gun safety by pledging to support, and this is a quote, whichever gun reform legislation has the best chance of passing. So Luke, my question to you is, can Senator Matt Lieberman count on your vote? (laughs) Uh, can we can we reach out to Lieberman? I know we've had him on the show. Can we ask him if he made a mistake and walked into the wrong room on primary registration day? And he's just like, oh, shit, I signed up for the Democrats. I meant to sign up for the Republicans. And he's just been faking it till he makes it since then. I don't this to me is like he has taken his falling popularity in this race by then putting himself in a political no man's land by supporting some element of gun control, although not specific enough to embrace any named item um, by embracing ideas that at least I, as a progressive think are bad in school choice and in term limits, and then making these sort of like meaningless, vacuous promises to never lie to you, to have the courage to compromise, to have the biggest constituent services budget of any of any senator in Georgia's history. I don't know. Again, it's like you knew that these points were coming in this campaign where you had to have reasons to rationalize your campaign. And it's a difficult thing to do. But it to me, again, he failed the test. I guess that's why he's at three percent. Matt Lieberman has never saw a hole that he didn't think could be, you know, dug deeper. <laughs> um, so, so I don't know. I guess it, it, you know, to to underline it here, and and then we'll close out. I I just think it adds to if a candidate taking these positions, if a candidate believing that this is the road to earning a spot in the runoff, is what ultimately cost Democrats the opportunity to either win this seat outright or if things really sort of turn in a worse direction, if this costs Democrats a spot in the runoff and leads to a two Republican runoff, oh, Matt Lieberman's not going to have a lot of friends in this party. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Because, I mean, the thing is, like, I'm going to throw a bone and then take it away real quick. Polling in these types of primaries is incredibly hard. Well, I mean, it's not a primary in these kind of jungle races, but primaries too. I mean, to be fair, like it's a, it's very hard. And that's why the polling has been really, really fluid. But I, I think it's really, really safe to say the difference between 36% and three is really strong. And you can rely on that. And you can also rely on the differences between B, you know, polling at almost nothing where we're not started to getting to 36 and then take even more from Matt Lieberman's 13% to 3%.
right? Like those, I think those trend lines are pretty strong. And I agree with you that like that 36 Warnock has could go down. He also go up. So, you know, it's, but I think at the end of the day, it is very, very likely he will be the highest polling Democrat on election day. Um, I, I don't see anyone else being in that position. And, you know, I, I've been very mean to Matt Lieberman. There's lots of reasons for it. He really opens himself up for this criticism uh, by just taking, making every wrong decision that he could when he's facing these criticisms. But like, uh, there's, there's some other blame to go around. Like there are plenty of other Democrats who, or at least people who have a D by their name running in this race who should get out as well and should in, endorse Warnock. And I think it would be beneficial for these people to do that because at this point, just the logistics of this race are very clear. And I mean, again, to be fair, at the beginning, this was a crazy thing. You know, Georgia does not have jungle primaries like this. They're unpredictable. Getting into this race, while I think was a bad decision, it could be understood. Three weeks out, 26, no, 23 days out, there's no excuse at this point besides it just being hard and difficult to say I, I was unsuccessful. And there are some times where, you know, you can say polls can't be trusted or like, I want to play this thing out. But like, this is just not one of those times. There's so many other times where you can do it, and this is just not one of them. You don't need election day to tell you you're not going to be successful. The sign, the you know, the signs are everywhere. So let's close out with just a brief reflection on the VP debate. We're recording now, almost a week after the debate, so I'm sure you know our listeners watched it. They probably absorbed a lot of a lot of the takes after the fact. Um, but just a, just an opportunity to pause on it here before we let it go. It is interesting since the debate happened and and all the coverage coming out of it happened, we did learn that the presidential debate on the 15th is canceled. Um, There may not be any more debates in this cycle, or or at best, there may only be one more debate between uh, Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. So the last word in this presidential race may actually have gone to the two uh, VP candidates in in Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. Luke, any sort of any week old reflections you'd like to share on uh, the VP debate from last week? Well, I think it's crazy that the last word might be from these two and that there's a like not zero chance that four years from now, the first word of the presidential debates could be from them as well. It's quite clear that if Joe Biden is successful and becomes the next president of the United States, that like he very well might not run for re-election considering his age and just his own public statements. And Kamala Harris would almost certainly be the front runner for the Democratic nomination, barring something very strange happening uh, while she is the, the vice president. And Mike Pence similarly positioned, uh, since he is the current uh, vice president and you know Donald Trump is pretty old and he even if he wanted to run again maybe he wouldn't uh, just based off that you know might be trying to retire on an island somewhere like a supervillain um, <laughs> so um, the other thing I would say is while it was a more civil debate and back to form I think it does just highlight how many problems exist with the with the current format of presidential debates, like the fact that the moderator was not allowed to ask follow-up questions is just ridiculous and stupid. And I think because of that, both candidates were able to take advantage of that in ways that I think were detrimental. Now, uh, Mike Pence definitely took advantage of that far more and was far more willing to lie and distort his positions and can distort distort the record. Um, But I think democracy is not served well by the current formation of debates. And I think it would be to our advantage to try to structure our debates in a way that hold our politicians more accountable. I actually really think Georgia does a good job with this. I mean, the Atlanta Press Club debates we do, I think are really great. Now, are they perfect? No, but like there are really good reporters that ask really good questions and they follow up and they even allow the candidates to ask questions of each other. And I, I, I just think that's a really good format. And I wish that they would try to learn some things from that because um, while I think it is, I, I think the one thing that these 
debates in their current formation are excellent at is giving you a sense of like who these people are, right? Like what makes them tick? What drives them? What are they fighting for? Like, I think that really does genuinely come through. I think that came through in the presidential debate. I think you get that sense of like, who is Kamala Harris? What is she like? Well, who is Mike Pence? What is he like? Like you, you get those things from these debates, but you don't get much else. And I think um, that's my takeaway is that I just really wish that people would take the debate seriously because I think they could be a better thing and that, like actually help people make a decision because uh, while this year, pretty much everyone's minds already make up, uh, lots of years that's not the case. And and debates actually do, on the margins, help people make those decisions. And I, I think if for nothing else, just getting them on the record with their opponent present is valuable. And so I, I this is definitely a place where it's like, I want debates to be reformed, not thrown out. I think I had a similar reflection in that I wish the campaigns would be a little more brave in the rules that they negotiate with the moderators. Um, because it, it was interesting to me. I I watched the debate with my parents here in Florida. They're not people who have been very politically engaged. They're not people who are like reading the news every day in the same way that, that you and I are, or at least they weren't prior to the Trump era. And one thing that I noticed in, in their reactions to the debate was they really keyed in on when the candidates did not answer the question or even like make an attempt to answer the question in any sort of way. And this was actually one of the worst debates I've ever seen in that you would get a question on one subject. That's where I think the lack of follow-up was really seen just like, and again, like this, this is where they were equally bad. Like Pence lied more, but they both dodged equally, I think. I should say, I think we're in a unique circumstance in this race in that the Biden campaign, probably rightfully so, is being very risk averse to the to the point that they're making almost clumsy decisions about the questions that they will not answer based on the assumption that it can be blatantly clear that they will not answer a question about whether or not they would add Supreme add seats to the Supreme Court, and that that will be less costly to them for them to look evasive than if they gave Republicans audio that could be stuffed into an ad and run in the final days of this race. I, I Like, I'm of two minds. I think that that is the right strategic decision for that campaign right now. But I think that it is also obvious to people who are less connected to politics, it is easy for them to hear a question and then hear an answer that has absolutely no relation to the question that was asked and think, oh, that person's being kind of evasive. And they don't have to know the ins and outs of the issues or why a candidate's acting that way. They just come away with this general impression of evasiveness and dishonesty. And I actually think that to some extent, candidates may be making the wrong choice with the exception of this race. I think it's sort of a unique circumstance, but I think if this becomes a learned lesson of campaigns going forward, that it's easier and less costly to look evasive than it is to answer hard questions. I think that's a bad lesson. I think it's a bad lesson for our democracy in general, but I, I don't think that it's a good lesson for campaigns on self-interest in winning, I think sometimes you look better when you get in there, answer a tough question, give an answer that's going to make some people upset, and then stand by it and live with it. And I just, that to me was like the major takeaway from that debate. You obviously know why Trump and Pence don't want that kind of accountability, and they, they, they're in such a bad spot that they need to completely reshape the reality people think we're in to have a chance at actually winning this race. But I, you know, I think in in closer races or when we don't have sort of the pressure of a global pandemic hanging over our politics and we hopefully, God willing, one day return to a more normal politics, I hope that this is not a lesson that that continues to be learned by candidates from both sides. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I, I think when you set up the rules the way they did, you're just inviting people to do it that way. Um, but I, I, you know, obviously the campaigns have some blame. Well, they negotiate uh, the rules, right? So like if those, uh, well, yeah, that's I mean, what I'm that's saying true. is yeah. like, they're taking the risk out by placing those constraints on the debate. 
And if they would trust their own candidates, I actually think I think Kamala Harris is a great debater and probably they should have given her, I think, a little more leash to be out there answering tough questions and just trusting her to give compelling answers in the moment, as opposed to being so conservative, sort of small C conservative in your approach to negotiating the debate rules that you box your candidate into having to look evasive because you've made a strategic decision as a campaign to not answer tough questions. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I, I hope in the future campaigns will be more willing to do that. Well, on that hopeful moment for future debates and, and the future of our democracy, we're going to leave that there this week. It's fitting for us to close on the debate because over the next few days, the Louder Milk debate series from the Atlanta Press Club is going to air on GPB, on, on their Facebook page, on their TV channel. Um, I think all of the major debates for Georgia's two Senate races, for the 6th and 7th Congressional District races, and for some countywide seats, like I, I think the Gwinnett County Chair, all of those debates are happening between the 12th and the 19th. So keep an eye out for those. We're going to watch those this week, and then we're going to talk about those when we get together again. Uh, but Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Alrighty, I will talk to you again soon. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.